the way I learned how to pitch in business school, I think the way most people did is, is what I call the arrogant doctor. So you have a problem, a pain, I have a solution, you know, a treatment, and I'm going to tell you why it's better than all the other treatments. And the structure that I read about in these, these movies was different. Every movie starts with some kind of shift in the world. And I call this shift the shift from the old game to the new game. And the archetypal example of this, I think, in the business world is what Benioff did with Salesforce. So he comes in and he says, hey, software is over. And there's this new world called the cloud, a new game, new rules. Uh, you know, that's the new way to win. And we're going to help you if you're, you're in there. Th this structure really is about defining a movement. And that's very different from, hey, I'm going to solve your problem. Welcome to Lenny's podcast, where I interview world-class product leaders and growth experts to learn from their hard-won experiences building and growing today's most successful products. Today, my guest is Andy Raskin. Andy helps CEOs and company leaders align their teams around something he calls a strategic narrative, which, as you'll learn all about in this episode, is essentially a simple story that helps people understand why they need your product and with that, helps you align your sales, marketing, and product teams, along with your fundraising and even your hiring efforts. Andy has worked closely with some of the most successful founders and companies out there, including companies like Gong, Dropbox, Uber, Salesforce, Square, IBM, and many others. In our conversation, Andy explains why most people are pitching their product completely wrong, why focusing on the problem you're solving for people is no longer an effective pitch, and how the strategic narrative helps you frame your solution in a much more effective way. Andy also shares a ton of examples of the framework in action, why focusing on categories and category creation is so limiting, signs your narrative needs work, and so much more. Enjoy this episode with Andy Raskin after a short word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Coda. You've heard me talk about how Coda is the doc that brings it all together and how it can help your team run smoother and be more efficient. I know this firsthand because Coda does that for me. I use Coda every day to wrangle my newsletter content calendar, my interview notes for podcasts, and to coordinate my sponsors. More recently, I actually wrote a whole post on how Coda's product team operates. And within that post, they shared a dozen templates that they use internally to run their product team, including managing the roadmap, their OKR process, getting internal feedback, and essentially their whole product development process is done within Coda. If your team's work is spread out across different documents and spreadsheets and a stack of workflow tools, that's why you need Coda. Coda puts data in one centralized location, regardless of format, eliminating roadblocks that can slow your team down. Coda allows your team to operate on the same information and collaborate in one place. Take advantage of this special limited time offer just for startups. Sign up today at coda.io slash Lenny and get a $1,000 startup credit on your first statement. That's coda.io slash Lenny to sign up and get a startup credit of $1,000. Coda.io slash Lenny. Are you hiring? Or on the flip side, are you looking for a new opportunity? Well, either way, check out lennysjobs.com slash talent. If you're a hiring manager, you can sign up and get access to hundreds of hand-curated people who are open to new opportunities. Thousands of people apply to join this collective, and I personally review and accept just about 10% of them. You won't find a better place to hire product managers and growth leaders. Join almost 100 other companies who are actively hiring through this collective. And if you're looking around for a new opportunity, actively or passively, join the collective. 
It's free, you can be anonymous, and you can even hide yourself from specific companies. You can also leave anytime, and you'll only hear from companies that you want to hear from. Check out lennysjobs.com slash talent. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Lenny. So great to talk with you. So you're quite known as someone that helps CEOs optimize their pitch, their story, their strategy, which we're going to get deep into. But before we do that, can you just give us a little glimpse into how you found your way into this line of work? So I started as a coder. I was a computer science major, undergrad. A friend and I had an idea for an app. So this was like during the dot-com years, so Windows app. And we coded a little prototype and we started, we, we put it out there. We started getting some users and we thought, oh, okay, maybe we can get some investment. So of the two of us, I spoke English fluently. So we decided, okay, I'll write the investor pitch. So I wrote the pitch, we sent it out and the reaction was really bad. And one VC wrote back and said, listen, I rate every plan I get on a, a scale of one to 10 and yours is a one. And next to the one he wrote uh, in parentheses, worst, in case we thought like maybe that was the top of his uh, rating scale. <laughs> uh, yeah, brutal. And uh, but then lower down. So this was back when they would like you'd print, send the hard copy of the plan and they might mail it back with comments written in. And he had written in not a compelling story. And a few weeks later, I'm walking by this Barnes and Noble and there's a sign in the window and it says for anyone who wants to tell a compelling story. Okay, that's me. And there's an arrow that's pointing to these books. And they turn out to be screenwriting books. And I didn't know anything about this. So I, I start reading these books. And it strikes me like a movie is a pitch. Like, you know, what is Star Wars a pitch for? It's a pitch for, you know, be good, like care about people, trust the force, you know, in, in their terms. But I don't have a couple hours, you know, I'm pitching a business. It's very different. You know, I'm mm. not writing a three-act screenplay. So like what applies, what doesn't apply? I mean, these are questions I think I'm still asking, uh, but I did my best to kind of take some of the learnings of, of how the movie was structured. It was very different from how my pitch was structured and kind of restructure it. And we did that and we sent the pitch out and we start getting more interest. Like it's really clear. And then we we had a term sheet, I think a few months later, and I'm like, what is this story thing that? But, you know, we didn't change the product. Uh, it was basically the same I, business, just sort of how we talked about it. That was really interesting to me. And I mean, over the next like 10, 15 years, I, I thought about like, hey, maybe I could do consulting with this. Like CEOs who heard about this would like ask me about it. But I still was like, no, no CEO is going to like budget a, a line item for the story. <laughs> you know, like that's not a thing. So I just didn't do it for a really long time until eventually I was proven wrong about that. And how many years ago was this at this point? So this was dot com. This was like 98 when I was pitching that company. Amazing. I think there's a couple of interesting tidbits about this. One is that interesting opportunities arise when you're doing something you're excited about. So you had the startup. It didn't work out, but like you've you had a problem that you solved for yourself and that led to another a bigger opportunity yeah for your to totally road. Mm -hmm. so that's interesting and then also just some of the best opportunities arise from solving your own problem not having not planning to start something with it but just like i have a problem Turns yeah out i think other, that's the same with you right Lynn? like you started writing about absolutely. stuff and like boom like that became the thing absolutely it was not quite boom but uh eventually <laughs> eventually it became boom feels like boom from outside that's yeah that's uh, that's how it goes it always feels it always feels uh 
uh, overnight yeah. for yeah. everyone else that isn't here. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's get into it. So you help CEOs at this point come up with what you call a strategic narrative. And you help them not only come up with this strategic narrative, but you help their teams align around this strategic narrative. So let's just start with what is a strategic narrative? Yeah, you'd think like I've been doing this for like 10 years, I'd have a very snappy definition of it. Uh, hmm. And and I don't know if I'm really happy with like I've ever found one that totally gets at it yet. The one thing I say is like it's this one story that the CEO uses to drive success in in marketing sales but also product that it, that it becomes like a north star strategic north star for for product roadmap for fundraising for uh recruiting really everything and what i think is really interesting is a kind of qualifier is that this story has a certain structure kind of like i said like when i found those screenwriting books i, I sort of shifted the structure and the traditional structure um, the way I learned how to pitch in business school, I think the way most people did is, is what I call the arrogant doctor. So you have a problem, a pain, I have a solution, you know, a treatment, and I'm going to tell you why it's better than all the other treatment. Not, not to say it's not better, uh, but just this is the structure of it. And it kind of sets you up for, for bragging. Like, <laughs> let me tell you why it's so great. And the structure that I read about in these, these movies was was different. Um, in the movies, every movie starts with some kind of sh shift in the world, in the in the in the character's world, right? And I call this shift the, sh the shift from the old game to the new game. And the archetypal example of this, I think, in the business world is what Benioff did with Salesforce. So he comes in and he says, "Hey, software is over." Like, uh, meaning software in the sense that we're going to own it and, and maintain it. And, uh, and there's this new world called the cloud, a new game, like the new, new, new rules. Everything has changed. And we're going to, you know, that's the new way to win. And we're going to help you if you're, you're in there. Th this structure really is about defining a movement. And, and that's very different from, Hey, I'm going to solve your problem. I think the Salesforce example is an awesome example of your approach. If they were thinking about it in the old way, what would Salesforce have done? How would they have pitched it? If not for everyone's moving to the cloud, you're dumb if you're using desktop software. Well, I think they would have just come out and said like, oh, you know, hey, I mean, CRM, by the way, was already a category. I mean, there were already, you know, Siebel was the huge giant of that space. Uh, there were already even companies doing it online, you know, doing it through the web. And so they would have come and said, oh, you know, we're easier to install than, you know, faster to get up and running than Siebel, or we have this much functionality compared to what I think it was, was it NetSuite or, I don't know, so, so, so it was some early, uh, early Salesforce-like thing that was out there. They would have done these sort of comparison things. And, and, you know, Benny, I mean, he's, he is a pretty proud guy. I think he did still say like, hey, we're the number one here, but mm -hmm. that wasn't what they led with. They, they led with this this story about this fundamental paradigm shift and, you know, are you in or are you not in? And what they did was instead of just saying like, Hey, we're better than they, they said, Hey, all those others, those, those Siebel's no, they're part of that old game they're, you want to play that software game. Be my guest, go, go buy Siebel. 
And, you know, of course, we know how it played out. So the crux of the uh, approach is instead of problem solution, you should go do this. It's the world is changing. Here's where it's going and we're going to help you get there. Uh, and I want to go in a little more depth of the framework. But before that, what are some other examples to give people a sense of like, oh, I see. I understand what this yeah. might be. So another great example and no coincidence so is Zora. Uh, so Zora is the company I wrote about in this, this post called The Greatest Sales Like I've Ever Seen. The CEO of Zora, Tian Suo, was employee number 11 at Salesforce. So he learns this from Benioff. And he's pitching, you know, hey, in the old world, businesses operated on transactions. You sold things to people outright. In this new world, he calls it the subscription economy, where we people want the benefits of those things without necessarily having to pay for them. And of course, gives all these examples of all the winners, you know, in this look at all the, the winning companies, they're all basically going to this new model. And, you know, and, and so he's pitching someone like Ford. And you can imagine they're going to Ford and pitching, you know, a subscription for car service, which is quite different from just a lease. And they're starting out with this, you know, this is the big shift. Another one, um, team I worked with early on, and I think, I think they'd agree, like their story came out of this work was Gong. Uh, so Gong, you know, everyone probably knows by now, like they, they, you know, they, they take the video recordings of all your sales calls and they stick AI onto it and come out with all these insights. And that story is, you know, hey, goodbye opinions. <laughs> it used to be a world where we, we sales is run on opinions. Hello, reality that now all the winners are going to, uh, are, are adopting this new mindset where we really have to see what's really going on. In the Gong example, let's say, what would they have done if, if they were going like, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's what we're going to do for you? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what they were doing when they started out. And and I'm not saying like that that didn't work totally. I mean, already by the time they started doing this, like they, they were starting to become a big company. I remember Amit Bendov said to me, listen, Andy, you know, they were around like Series B. I think this was around 2018. It's like, we're going to be a huge company. The question is how huge? And, you know, I think that this narrative, like along the lines of like Azwara, Salesforce, if we get this right, this is going to be a multiplier on our growth. So, you know, I, I don't remember exactly the pitch beforehand, but it was very much like, hey, we're going to record your calls. Uh, we're going to get insights from them. They're better than the insights you could get Salesforce from Salesforce. There wasn't this kind of unifying kind of movement ideology that put it all in context. And what was really interesting was one thing I, I don't think they'd be upset if I shared and maybe it's known. Like, you know, initially they were seen as a tool for like sales operations, you know, for someone who's going to record the calls. Mm. And what this narrative did for them, I think it was already starting to happen, but what it really uh, coalesced was this is a tool for sales leadership. You talked about Zura and the post you wrote. And I imagine many people listening are like, oh, shit, this is the guy that wrote that post that everyone's always sharing with me about <laughs> how to make a deck. And I wanted to ask, how impactful was that one piece of writing for you and your career, just like as a tangent? I had written some other posts on Medium in particular medium uh medium chance changed quite a bit yeah. but back then i found that i could write stuff there and get really like a, a lot of people who were interested in what i was interested in would, would sort of come in and and uh and create some noise about it so i was already doing 
this kind of work for a couple of years, but that post immediately got something like 2 million views around mm. the world. Mm. And I started getting uh, inquiries from teams all over the world. And it was, I think, what really allowed me to sit, no, okay, I could do this work that that CEOs would budget a line item for this. Because I think if you really understand that post, it's not really about a sales deck. It's really about this story that Tian and that, you know, the CEO is telling everywhere and that, you know, is showing up in the sales deck and, and structuring it that way. I think it's just another example that comes up a bunch on this podcast, just the power of writing and the power of content. And there's, yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah, totally. I mean, I had a, I had a little mini career as a journalist, as a freelance writer. Mm. And I, I really love that. I actually, I took a class in New York called how to write a magazine article. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, sort of mid-career, sort of curious. And the class wound up being more about like how to sell a magazine article. And I found I really loved that, like pitching articles and, you know. But one thing that was always a downer for me was like, there's always this editor, you know, sort of like deciding what what I'm what's gonna be out there. And um, you know, when you work with a great editor, it's great. Like they make your stuff better and, and you, 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 they're priceless. But still, there's this intermediary. And, and what started to happen, I think, around when I started writing around 2013, 14, you start to see these platforms like Medium, uh, even LinkedIn, where you can just write and have this audience. And I think no way I could do this, what, the work I do if that development hadn't happened first. I'm taking us off track, but I want to go a little deeper with this. <laughs> I find that there's kind of two paths to writing online. One is like is your path where you write one piece that just like blows up like crazy. The other path is more my path where I just write consistently for a long time yeah. and both work. And most people try to go your path and they never succeed. It's really hard to make something gets 2 million views, but you can go that path. You know, this is like you said earlier, like, hey, it seems like boom, but really mm. it didn't. So I had that was that was probably the. 30th or 40th piece, mm. you know, and they were gradually getting more and more traction. There was one I wrote before that about it's kind of dissecting Elon Musk's pitch for the Powerwall, the battery mm. that they sell. And that one got maybe like a few hundred thousand views and also was a big jump. And, and then, you know, the next one got, you know, <laughs> some paltry number. Of, so there, there was a, it, what I find is like, yeah, there's this, there's this a while where you're writing and it feels like you're talking to nobody. And then sort of gradually it grows and, and you'll have these peaks and then, about, but then, you know, over time is, is, is where the magic is. Okay. I'm really glad you pointed that out that it rarely is just you write one thing and it's boom. Yeah. Great. I'll also say, sorry, because I worked in a magazine, mm. I haven't done a newsletter because that idea of like having a deadline all the time and like constantly having to, we used to call the magazine feed the beast. Like, I feel so free not to have that. So for now, uh, at least I haven't done that. I know that well. So let me take us back on track. And yeah. let's talk about just the high level framework here. So you talked about the, it starts with this idea of tell people world is changing, join this movement. What's like the simple way to think about this, the pieces of this uh, strategic narrative yeah. framework? A lot of times people contact me and say, hey, I tried it, didn't work. Mm. And well, one one very common thing, at least earlier, was they would basically just take the Zwara deck, they'd get a hold of it and just, just like put their logo on it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that's not going to work. 
one thing is, you know, we're not just saying, hey, the world is changing. And there's sometimes I'll see the world is changing and there'll be used to be, and there's a long list of things. And then now it is a long list of bullet points, right? What's really, I think, key is naming it, like naming that old game. You, the examples you saw, software, cloud, transactions, uh, subscription, opinions, reality. This very, very concise naming um, is really key. And it's hard because in making it compact, you're losing completeness. So, you know... You can imagine you're in a meeting, someone says like, hey, how about we do transactions to subscriptions? And so it says, well, I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't really subscribe to. Subscription economy, really? So we're always kind of overstating it in a way, but it's not a problem. Like, you know, I don't think people say like, oh, you know, that's wrong, subscription economy, because I, I still go to the grocery store and buy things, right? So anyway, that, that that's the first piece. The second piece is what I call uh, naming the stakes. And there's a few ways to do this, but one that's really great if we can do it is is to name the winners to show that winners are already playing this new game so for instance with uh zwar they're saying hey look uh look at all the the, the new winners like this is like 2015 so like airbnb box you know all, all these companies they're, they're already doing this subscription thing and by the way overall like they show this scary stat about the like the the longevity of Fortune 500 companies. It's getting smaller, and so mm. it's a little disingenuous. But basically, they make this case that hey, companies are dying. The ones that are winning are are doing this right. Mm. And so, to the extent we can, we want to we want to make this life and death, just like a movie, right? And this is again, uh, I'll, I'll I'll make the ref the parallel to Star Wars. So Luke he spends like the first 15 minutes of the movie belly aching, like. He wants to be a pilot. He wants to go out and have adventures in space. So Obi-Wan comes. He says, hey, we got this mission, this princess, we got it and all this stuff. Let's go out. Let's go. I'll teach you to be a pilot. We'll go have adventures in space. What does Luke say? He says, ooh, you know what? I can't really get involved. I got to go home. It's late. Who does this sound like? The reluctant buyer, you know, mm. so yeah, I want to be innovative and all this. Ooh, you know what? I don't have budget this quarter. So, so how does, how does George Lucas change Luke's mind? He basically kills the aunt and uncle. Sorry, spoilers. Um, it's been 40 years though. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's probably, you're probably not going to see it. Kills the aunt and uncle. Now it's, it's pretty clear they're coming for Luke. Now the stakes are life and death. Probably he's going to be dead, but there is this other path that Obi-Wan holds out for him. And, you know, whenever I work with teams and I talk about this, so they're like, okay, I guess we got to then for kill the prospects aunt and uncle. And basically, yes, I mean, like figuratively, we got to show them that the future is not going to just be sort of okay, that there are, it's probably, people talk about like making it emotional. And I've always wondered, like, what does that mean? Like, literally, what is the definition? And this is for me, the definition is that the prospect doesn't see the future as sort of okay. They see it as split between a very negative outcome and a potentially very positive outcome. Mm -hmm. The third piece is what I call um, naming the object of the new game. I used to call it the promised land message, but I've, I've changed it to this because I think it's it's. I found that it, it's sort of a little more fruitful. You know, this subscription economy transactions it can get a little highfalutin. And, and sort of like big, right? So 
you know, but like on the website, when we just have to boil it down to a couple of words, that's going to be clear, like right away. What can we say? And I find that, you know, what's the object of the new game? It really boils it down as kind of the rallying cry of the movement. So the example with Zwora, the object for a while was turn customers into subscribers. Very simple, you know, it just sort of flows from it. Airbnb for a while had this one, uh, live anywhere. You know, if you think about, you know, belong, some, belong anywhere. Well, well, actually, it was uh, sorry, live like it was, a human. So you're right. It was belong anywhere, and then it switched to live there. Mm. It was it was both. I'm not, I may have the the chrono- chronology wrong, but mm-hmm. it was the two of those things. You know better than I do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but either one. I mean, I think they're saying very similar things. Uh, hey, there's this new world where you can, you know, you don't have to you don't have to live in hotels. You can stay in people's yeah. What's the what's the object of that game is to to belong anywhere, but live mm-hmm. there, right? And it's a, I love it when it works that way, where it's almost like an asymptotically unachievable thing. Like you're never literally going to live there. But, and, and if you think about it, this, this buyer mission statement is this rallying cry. I think of it really as the mission of the company. I mean, what, what is the mission of Airbnb other than to help people live there? You know, if they're going to be customer focused and all that. The fourth piece is, okay, well, this object of the game, you know, winning this game, it better be hard, right? Because if it's not like we don't have a, like, why are we even exist? Just like with the movie, like if it's, if, if, if Luke can just go like destroy the death star, then, you know, no movie. So there's gotta be sort of obstacles in the way, things that are preventing them from it. So saying, okay, you want to, you want to turn customers into subscribers. So where's Zora, where they go next to say, okay, well, how are you going to measure lifetime value? Because now you have this always on thing. How are you going to measure preferences and how they're changing over all these new kind of challenges that didn't exist before? And then, and, and these are like the opposite. These are like the, you know, the, the, the monsters in Lord of the Rings or, you know, the, the, the empire in, in, in Star Wars. These are the obstacles. And I think about them because they sound like problems. You know, nor, this is what people would normally say. Oh, these are the problems we solve. But by setting up this story thing first, we've got to repackage them as obstacles to a to a, a, a new goal state mm. that we've already uh, positioned as life and death. So they take on this much more emotional meaning. We understand why they matter. And then, of course, the last piece is uh, is is now talking about well, how are we going to overcome these obstacles? How, how you know what are the in the in the narrative people in the movie business they call these like the magic gifts that the main character gets to go, you know, help them win. What are the ways now we can talk about that and success stories and all all the rest of the stuff. So there's some obvious parallels to the hero's journey here. I imagine that was a source of inspiration and the Star Wars, I think, is like the epitome of that journey. Can you talk about just how related those two are, how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so Hero's Journey is this this book that comes from... uh, um, I think it's Hero of a Thousand Faces mm-hmm, uh, is a mm-hmm. book by Joseph Campbell, sociologist. And he uh, looks at myths over different cultures and different times. And he finds this kind of common structure that he calls the hero's journey. I mean, it's there's some controversy about that, about his book. You know, is it mm. a very male-oriented uh, sort of take on things and a bunch of things? But, you know, even that aside, I found when I would talk about hero's journey and stuff, it's just like it didn't really tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, like, okay, yeah, I got to do this pitch. So 
uh, you know, in the hero's journey, there's like refusal of the call. That's actually that what thing where Luke like doesn't uh, says he doesn't want to go, and where the buyer says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm I don't have budget. But I don't know. It was just like too theoretical for me to really. Uh, when I use it, people seem to sort of glass over. So yeah. I just don't really talk about that at all. But yeah, I mean, that's behind a lot of this stuff for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think people hear about that all the time when they're like, become a better storyteller, tell your story in this hero's journey. And it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Also, I would say, you know, there's storytelling as a skill kind of thing, which is a great thing. You know, you learn how to tell stories better, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really interested in that in my work. What I'm interested in is the one story and the structure of that one story. And this one story, it doesn't really have, you know, the world has moved from transactions to subscriptions. Like there's not a main character in that story. Who's like having a problem and getting saved. You know, it's, it's almost as if what's happening is we're present, we're, we're turning the person we talk to into the main character by, by creating this, by, by spelling out the shift. We're like changing their world. And we're asking, and we're saying, Hey, you, you gotta, you gotta change. And do you want to come with us? Yeah. And it's almost like you're putting them into the hero's journey. Like you can, exactly. here's how you win. Exactly. I love that. So let me just try to summarize what you shared, this five-step framework. So you start with, here's a new movement that's happening and you want to name it. You want to name the stakes and there's winners and losers and here's it's already happening and it's really important. Then you want to name the uh, object of the new game, like turning customers into subscribers, then show the obstacles. Here's why it's challenging. And then talk about how you're going to overcome these obstacles. Yeah. And by the way, the naming of the uh, the object of the new game, I find it often is really nice to do it as a question. Mm. So, you know, so we asked, so, so hey, there's this shift from transactions to uh, subscriptions and look, everyone's doing it. And so we asked a simple question. What would it take to turn every customer into a subscriber? Mm. You know, and this way we're kind of bringing the, the person we're pitching to along, almost like they're coming along with us as a co, I don't know, adventurer uh, in, in crafting this story. Mm, I love that. This episode is brought to you by Eco. Last month, Eco users earned an average of $84 in cash back rewards. How? With Eco, the future of personal finance. Eco is the update to a misaligned financial system, providing an app that works just like your bank, but removes almost all of the middlemen, helping even the best money optimizers optimize in less time automatically. What if you earn rewards for paying your rent or got rewarded for ordering food and shopping online or even earn rewards for saving each month? And then imagine if you got rewarded again just for getting rewarded. With Eco, you can spend at some of your favorite merchants and automatically get 5% cash back. Plus, Eco's APY rewards look more like $80, not $0.80. And then there are Eco Points, the world's first open reward system. You earn them whenever you do almost anything in the Eco app. Eco is working to make these points the most rewarding points ever, so it pays to be early. Sound too good to be true? Go to eco.com slash Lenny, sign up for an onboarding, and find out why it isn't. Lenny's podcast listeners who attend an Eco welcome session will get an exclusive 4% APY on deposits over $1,000. Learn more at eco.com slash Lenny. That's eco.com slash Lenny. Maybe just to reinforce this even more, what if we go through the five steps and just with one company as an example and yeah. just talk about what each of those were for them? Okay, great. So there's a company called um, 360 Learning, 
Uh-huh. Uh, so this company, I don't know if folks know, but this, this company has raised like over $200 million. They're in the space of like um, corporate training software, you know, so big companies, they, they have to train their people on all kinds of stuff. Uh, so you want to go through that one? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, great. So the story, and, and by the way, uh, Nick Hernandez is the CEO and Nick's been on my podcast. So he's talked about this. So they, for a long time, were pitching themselves as collaborative learning. So they have, you know, f- features that let people sort of collaborate on courses and uh, all kinds of stuff. And and Nick is often p- pitching CEOs, of course, his team is as well. And he told me that it was sort of like kind of falling a little bit flat, like people collaborative learning. Okay, whatever, you know, how are you different from this learning platform, this learning platform? And so when we work together, you know, this collaborative learning, it's almost like a category name or a a descriptor or something. They was so embedded that I decided like, I don't, I don't even want to like take it out, but can we define it in terms of like a, of the story? So the story they came to was, Hey, used to be that companies, uh, train their people through a, through a, basically a mindset of top-down learning. There's going to be some like learning guru at the company, they're going to get all the courses, they're going to, you know, put it all together and like sort of set out this training uh, material to everybody. And what's happening now is winning companies are, 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 are approaching this differently in, in this, they're, they're adopting this approach we might call upskill from within, mm. which is, you know, if you look at like Google, like there's this page where I think you can go, it's a public, but you can like connect with like Google's AI experts. They literally turn their internal experts into like champions that are educating, not even just the company, but even external people. They've created this culture of our own people are going to be the educators. So that's the shift from top down to this upskill from within. And of course, I just even started to to do the second piece, which was like, hey, there's there's look at the big companies who are doing this. And then I think they showed, hey, you know, you're not doing this. Look, training is becoming very expensive. It's people don't care. People, you know, so this is the downside. So we're creating these these sort of stake. And and also I think he had something about, you know, how training now, like companies, like if you don't adapt, like if you can't get these skills to your people, like if you're a car company and you can't get these skills around, you know electric cars you're dead you know so nick was in france and he saw this poster from uh, a recruiting poster for mcdonald's and it said hey if you work at mcdonald's you're going to learn from everybody else on your team and it was like wow there there it is right so it's another example we used as a kind of winner example and so then the question became you know how I can't remember exactly. It was something like, how do you upskill from within? Like, what would it take for you to turn your experts into like champions of learning in the company and turn them into stars and all this, right? And then I'm going to forget here what all the obstacles were, but I think it was things like, well, how are you going to make it possible for anybody to create a course? You know, people who don't even know how, how to, you know, might have expertise in in electric engines, but, you know, don't know how to create a course. That, that happened. How are you going to make sure that there's still like the the learning department, they're going to keep control and and can, you know, all this, you can imagine all the different kinds of questions. And then of course, now 360 Learning starts talking about all that stuff. And what Nick has told me, uh, I'm actually going to be on a, on a, 
a webinar with Nick where someone asked me, like, could you bring in a CEO who could talk about, you know, this stuff, not just you blabbing on about strategic narrative. And so Nick is going to uh, join it, join it. And we had a dress rehearsal the other day and he was telling me, like, it's just like when he starts with this now, he doesn't even get the question anymore of like, well, how are you different from this other learning platform, you know, which used to always be the thing. And it's it's just a much more seamless like okay yeah talk to our learning people get this get this going so it it's just sounds like it's been really effective for them that's actually was what i was going to ask next is what kind of impact have you seen with someone shifting their pitch and story from this doc what was it the arrogant doctor approach to yeah. the strategic narrative yeah i mean it's always this kind of thing i hear i mean of course it's very difficult to say to to measure this i mean like what was the value of the strategic narrative for gong and its growth you know was it was it 3x versus 1x, 2x, or whatever. I don't, who knows, right? Um, but the things I hear from CEOs, a few things. One is that, yeah, when they're pitching, they're not pitching features out of context. They're pitching now a movement, you know, which is a lot better place to be, I think. You know, you're, you're in a way, you're not pitching product. Product, your product is like a prop for making the story come true. Very important prop. <laughs> but there's this higher level overlay that becomes the focus of the conversation at first. And of course, we're going to get into product and, and that that helps sell. Once we have this story, then everything in marketing can be all about this story. You know, with Zwara, when they, if you look at their website, well, when they, when they first started doing this, like maybe 80% of the, the content is not, Hey, let me tell you about how Zwara is so great, or, or here's our new release or whatever. It's here's how music companies are embracing subscriptions. Here's how luxury goods companies are embracing subscriptions. You know, it's like all these kind of almost trend pieces that become unlimited fodder. And again, you're not touting your, it's less salesy, right? Another thing I, I just hear always, I just interviewed a CEO this morning for, for my podcast. And, and uh, this is the first thing he actually said was, it becomes the strategic North Star for the product. So uh, what he was telling me, and th this was actually a little unusual. I, I asked him, like, why did you come to me at first? And of course, I've asked him that before. But th he said something that I this time that was like a, a little different from what I heard before. He said, you know, we we're constantly getting feature requests through sales, through customer success. And we had sort of no uh, like way bar for to decide like, well, what do we take on? What don't we take on? And this clearly has become our bar. You know, if you think about it for 360 learning, you know, does it help us upskill from within? It's in. Does it not? Or it's prioritized, you know? Does it not? Less prioritized. Amit Bendoff told me this directly. He said, you know, we exactly the same thing. We used to, we, we, he said, we get a lot of requests for features and a lot of them are basically about opinions, like some, some way to, to, to record opinions. And this is gone. We're not going to do those in Ga at Gong. Yeah. We're not going to do those. Are there any companies out there that maybe aren't clients that you see as like, wow, these guys are nailing it and they're doing a great job of the strategic narrative? Well, one that really comes to mind is, I mean, it's been out there for a while, but Drift, you know, Drift comes out with a with essentially like a, a chatbot for your website, mm -hmm. which might be like the 30th chatbot for your website. Mm -hmm. And they don't say, hey, here's why our chatbot is the best one. They come, they they start from a completely different place, which is, hey, 
used to be people would sort of wait around for you to get back to them. You know, it was a world of sort of later of, they called it the world of forms. You know, you put up a, a web form and you expect someone's going to fill it out and maybe wait a few days while you take your sweet time deciding if they're going to, you're going to get back to them. And there's, and, and David Cancel and David Gerhardt uh, start from right the beginning saying, now we're in a world of, of now where they, where buyers are, they, they, I think they showed this woman, I remember was, this woman sleeping with her phone. Like that's your, that's your, your prospect, like they're, they're just always on and they're going to expect you to be engaging with them right away. And they called this conversational marketing. And, you know, they really went with that and created, I think, a whole movement. And they broke away from all of the other, you know, chatbots. Awesome example. So earlier you threw out this word category, and I've noticed you haven't talked about category and category creation too much. And I think that you're kind of uh, not a fan of this idea of creating a category and f- focusing on category. I'd love to hear your perspective on how that all relates to the stuff you recommend. Lenny, are you trying to get me in trouble? Like that guy, that that, that guy on your podcast who uh, who attacked uh, jobs to be done. Apparently, uh, let's do it. Let's see what kind of trouble <laughs> we can get into. <laughs> I would I would soften it a little bit, and not just uh, because I, I don't want the ire of the category design folks, but I, I really would soften and say I, I wouldn't say I'm not a fan of creating category. Look, I think the um, you know if you look play bigger, which has being become kind of the the bible of that category creation thing. You know, if you look behind that, they're gonna what what do they say the category is? They say it's a narrative, it's a a story about how the world was to to how how it is, and 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 so what I find though is that when people think about category creation, they tend to just focus on like, okay, well, what's this category name going to be that we got? What are these three words that are, or two words, whatever, that are going to sort of magically make us seem like we're totally different from everybody else? And, and, and A, I think that's not really possible. Like these three words aren't going to do it. Take Gong. I mean, already other companies were using this term revenue intelligence, Right. With Gong, it suddenly becomes a thing because I think they have this opinions to reality story behind it. You know, at one point, I again, I asked Amit, he said, Yeah, in it, he, because he had really, I remember he really struggled. Like, what should we call it? What should we call it? He came up with, with, with that one. But then when I asked him later, he's like, Yeah, you know what? In hindsight, we probably could have called it like strawberry intelligence. It didn't matter. It was really the story that, that was sort of mattered. I, mm. I don't, I think he was exaggerating a little bit, but. <laughs> And I think the category people would actually agree with this. I think they would agree with like, hey, you're the, these three words are it's sort of a, a a shorthand for this movement for of of old game, new game narrative. But I guess that I, I guess I feel like uh, still by calling it category and category name, like we're just focusing on those three words so much and. What happens often is is CEOs will they'll kind of come up with this little category like like what happened with uh, with Nick at the 360 Learning with collaborative learning we have this name but we don't know how to tell the story around it and um, that you know so my feeling is like well let's let's focus on the story so uh, that's why I talk about strategic narrative and and movement creation versus category creation you know if someone decides that your movement is a category, great bonus. I see. So essentially your approach is category can play a part of this, but there's a bigger 
question you have, what's the story? What's the movement? What are the obstacles and categories an element of that potentially? I mean, I always almost see them as orthogonal, like, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, HubSpot, you know, HubSpot had this narrative around inbound, you know, it used to be just outbound. So now we're going to have inbound. And that, that wasn't really a category. There's still, I think if you, back then they were probably known as marketing automation. Now they're probably known as CRM because they broadened, but this movement is the thing that's sort of the constant, uh, and in some ways orthogonal to whatever category they're, they're, they're in, you know? Is the strategic narrative framework right for essentially any company or is there like a sweet spot? I've noticed most of the companies you've been talking about are B2B SaaS. So I don't know, maybe like if there's a spectrum of perfect fit for strategic narrative framework and then like not a fit at all, what's like, what's along that spectrum? Yeah, well, you can see, I mean, it it takes a little time, I mean, uh, to tell this story uh, and it's a kind of, you were kind of framing it a little bit and we're telling it in lots of different channels, right? So I think it does really uh, play well in sort of like this enterprise sales context because uh, also we have a group buyer there. So it's not just one person who's, you know, doing some research and like there's, there's like this whole group has to sort of have a, a united, a uniting story. So I think you're right that in noticing that the companies that this tends to, you know, resonate with tend to be B2B enterprise sales, uh, technology, I think, because often the product is very complicated, you know, that arrogant doctor stuff, you know, comes from an age when the the things people were selling were like products on shelves that didn't change much, you know, cans of soup at the supermarket or, or like a car and the dealership, even software back then, you know, shrink wrapped in a box doesn't change. Um, software b2b software you know this stuff is changing by the minute and does it even make sense to make a claim to say like oh we have these features and they have those features therefore we're better i mean like does that can you even does that make any sense that said you know hey i was looking for uh i was looking for like a a sports watch you know like a fitbit and then you know and i'm yeah i'm comparing specs and i'm doing all that stuff you know uh, and so that mode of, of buying is still happening, but I think that's, you know, in that, so yeah, when like consumer products companies contact me, I, I usually say no, uh, occasionally they're, they're look they still say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll build this. We still want to have this narrative, but yeah, I think it, it has the most value, most impactful right away for B2B, uh, enterprise technology companies. Just a few more questions. One is just. What's a sign that you should spend time in this area, that something is broken in your strategic narrative story pitch? Well, I can tell you what I hear from CEOs when they contact me. Like, why did I, I always ask, like, what, what's happening? Like, because that that idea I had, no CEO is going to budget a line item for this. I'm basically asking, like, why was I wrong? Like, what, 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 what? so a few things they tell me. One is that the company is maturing from a point, a stage where, They've been successful, but that success is one CEO put it this way as like was brute force of the founders. So the founders are in every meeting, they're in every in every product discussion, every sales call, and that's shifting. The company's getting bigger. Usually I'm seeing this around like series B, where the company is getting so big they can't be in every every sales call, every market, and they're looking to kind of transmit all the good stuff and some direction 
in a way that people are going to remember and, and all and, and all that, everything from how we pitch to what the product should be and all that. And they see this as, as that. There's another kind of point that I see people contacting me at, which is where they're growing. It's usually a little bit later where they've they've had they've scaled tremendously successfully now we're either acquiring or building out whole new product units hmm. and that old story we told is just it's just not big enough and we got to expand it to something bigger this is this is the example of like one trust which uh, was on my uh, which I'll have on my the CEO I'll have on my podcast recently you know starts out with just uh sort of i think data privacy around you know the, the regulations that people have to be able to say don't track me things like that and then they they buy these other companies and now we have this much bigger bigger offering so how do we tell the story and then i guess the third one is some form of pivot where hmm. hey we were telling an old story but we're you know whatever the market changed or whatever and we're we want to go in a different direction so say a founder is listening to this and they're like, okay, I realize I need to do this. I haven't spent enough time on this. Something's not working. This could be a huge unlock for us. What are the first couple steps they could take to start to figure this out? And I imagine at some point it's like, go talk to Andy. He'll help you through this. Is there stuff you can do on your own? How do you go about it? Well, a lot of folks have have emailed me uh, over the years like, hey, well, I told you before there were some who emailed me like, hey, tried it, didn't work. But mm. many, many more have have emailed me. Hey, I, I tried it; it did work. Thank you. And so, yeah, just try to lay out that structure and try it. I mean, even when I work with teams, I I, I adapt what what my people might call sort of lean approach. Like, I want to get that thing out there into sales calls. You know, we're not rolling it out to the whole sales team right away, but getting it out into some sales calls and get a sense like, hey, is this resonating? Are are people like giving the nods? Ideally, by the way, one way I, I look to test it, you know, is is it working? Is like when we talk about this shift and the stakes and the, you know, do they stick, do they kind of say like, yeah, let me tell you how that's playing out for us. And or or in my yes, I'm seeing that. Let me uh sometimes I'll literally I'll ha- I'll train salespeople to ask them that question. Like, am I crazy or are you seeing this? And and what do they say? And you know, you can usually tell like if they're in and it's qualitative, but I, I really like that kind of kind of testing uh, to see if it's working. And I think anybody can do that. Is there a template or a guide you have online for folks to follow other than maybe just listening to this podcast and reading? Is there a post that's like, here's the framework defined and go follow these steps? I mean, I guess the closest is that the greatest sales deck I've ever seen post, which is oh. this Wara deck. But even there... I I really people have asked me like for a framework like and mm-hmm. and like um you know presentation companies that uh, could we have your your template so we could like make it available to people we'll we'll revenue share with you or something you know and I am so against this template like every team I work with it's different you know it's not like the same number of slides sometimes we can lay out this shift in one slide sometimes it just feels better or the team likes it better, whatever, if it's a few and we're sort of getting people into it. Sometimes there's no slides. <laughs> um, so I am, am really uh, hesitant to sort of recommend any template. And what I'd say is like, these are principles for, you know, for, for building it, not 
not any prescribed formula. If they do want to reach out to you while we're on this topic, what's the best way to contact you? Um, connect with me on LinkedIn. That's usually a good one. Um, I, I, I'm, and I'm usually posting things on LinkedIn that I've learned from working with uh, other teams. Awesome. Last question before we get to our very exciting lightning round. I saw, speaking of LinkedIn, you posted how in a working session with companies that the second session is always this like low point they all go through and everyone's starting oh, yeah, to yeah. get discouraged yes. and pained. And yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I love the expectation setting. You're like, this is going to suck initially and then it'll get better. Why is that the low point? And what is it that they focus on in that second session? Yeah. Well, apparently I'm not doing enough of an expectation mm-hmm. setting because like <laughs> what, what that post was about was like this 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 woman who... So when, when I work with a CEO, I always ask them to create a what they call a strategic narrative team of up to four people. And usually those are leads of like marketing, sales, whatever. In this case, the CFO was a really important person in this company. And, and so the CEO wanted her as part of this team. And she said to me at the end, she's like, you know, I would love where we got to. I always ask what worked, what didn't work. And she's like, I love where we got to. That worked great. What didn't work was like, you told us that this second session was going to be bad, but I don't, I think you could have drilled home more like exactly how bad. So, <laughs> and then I asked her actually, could I, could I, have that quote with your face on a slide that I now present to future teams. She said, she said, yeah, you could do that. So the way the way I work it is in, I have a kickoff session where essentially I'm, I'm, I'm asking people on the team, like, what are these pieces? What is this old game, new game shift? What, what, how do we talk about when set the stakes and everything I just talked, took you through. And, you know, we have like five people in the room. There's going to be a, like, we're going to come out of this with notes and notes and boards, sorry, boards and boards of, of ideas of like this stuff, right? And so then two things happen. One is I ask the team to start interviewing customers about how they see the shift. And, and, and sometimes the customers will literally give us the words and, and that can be helpful in sort of aligning if we have differences. But, but I also start working with the CEO one on one and we start and we build a first version of this thing. And it's the second session where we present this first version to the team. Mm. And think about what's happening. Like the team has just given us like millions of gold ideas. Like truly, they're all. And in order to make something sort of clean and powerful, the CEO and I have had to pretty much throw out all of them, you know, <laughs> save one or two, right? And there's going to be feelings about that, first of all. Second of all, you know, if this were easy to just like get all the, you know, interview everybody, come up with it, they, they would have done it, right? So it's going to be wrong. But the good news is this is where the team gets to weigh in. I also ask what's working, not working in, in this thing. And when we learn how it's not working, that gives us the juice to then me and the CEO go back to the drawing board. We, we plan on this in advance. We're going to go back to the drawing board. And then bring up something good. So I, you know, having a shit draft is like a million times more valuable than having all these great ideas, but it's also really painful. Uh, it's painful not only for them, but for me, like no matter how many times I say this, I want it. I expect they're going to love it in that first one too. Uh, and I'm really pissed off when they don't. But but luckily now I've done it enough times. Like I know that's going to happen. Mm. I was just watching a documentary about Annie Lamont who came up with the shitty first draft uh, concept for writers that I, uh-huh. I stick to. I'm I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah. As you're talking, one last thought that I had is so you work with CEOs and founders. 
I feel like this could be just as useful to product leaders, product managers working on a product that they're launching. Just like, what is the movement where it's happening? Here's why this product's important. Do you, do you find that too? Absolutely. And it very frequently, like the product leader, chief product officer is part of this group. Mm. And, and what I'd say though, is that, you know, the, the reason I, so when I looked after I did this work for a few years, I looked back and I was like, which were the ones where, which were the engagements I did where like, I can see it. And it, it just, the narrative is like really this true North star for everything. And it was always the ones where the CEO was, was leading it. Um, not just like in name, but like literally the person who called me, who was like in, you know, working on the drafts with me and like going through like, and so initially I didn't, I didn't uh, in, insist that it would be the CEO doing that, but eventually I started to. And I think even for a product leader, like you're going to want the support. You, you don't want to be just telling that story in product. You, you're going to want that supported from, you know, uh, the Zora person who gave me the initial deck, he said, you know, it was like, I had, it was like, I, I had air cover and I was just going down and knocking down deals on the ground. Mm. You're going to want that air cover in marketing, sales, recruiting, everything. And, you know, how much better is it if it's, if it's really driven by the CEO and you have that. Amazing. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on or you want to share before we get to our very exciting lightning round? Uh, no, except uh, I, I love category design people, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's really just it's really just sort of terms that I like that are you know what forget it sc sc scratch that part. Uh, uh, I thought that was funny. Oh yeah, okay, okay, yeah, we can leave it in. We can leave it in. You could even leave this in where I'm telling you to scratch it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I was actually <laughs> going to joke that I was going to cut this out and leave you hanging, but okay, no, we can't. Right, no you could do that. Yeah, category no, no. design people love you. Uh, don't, don't hate me. Thank you. Great. I love it. We're going to be okay. I think. Okay. Well, with that, we reached our very exciting lightning round. I've got, uh, five questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. I haven't seen the question. I saw the question you sent them, but I didn't really look at them. So I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I said. I'll, I'll go Perfect. off. The Excellent. The best version of this. What are two or three books that you've recommended most to other people? One of the books that I read initially in that, from that Barnes and Noble, it mm. was story by Robert McKee. I think a lot of people know about it who are sort of interested in story stuff, but it's it's kind of a Bible of people who are doing like screenwriting and stuff. Pretty If you know anyone who's in Hollywood who are like thought about going to Hollywood, like they, they, they know about this book. Uh, I love a book called Out of Sheer Rage. It's really not about what I do or anything, but it's uh, the author is Jeff Dyer. Jeff, he's a he's he's written a lot of books that are kind of essay memoir. And this is a book about him trying to write a book about D.H. Lawrence. So it's all about procrastinating and like, oh, like him, I'm supposed to write this book. I think I'm going to I'm about to go on a trip somewhere. Should I bring the collected works of D.H. Lawrence with me on the trip? Because that'll help me start the book. But maybe I shouldn't because it's not going to then I, I could come back refreshed without having, you know, basically it's all that. It's all this sort of like in the head. I, I just really enjoy that book. What's a favorite recent movie or TV show that you've really enjoyed? Uh, Station Eleven. Mm. Station Eleven. That was just so beautiful to me. Trippy. It was a trippy movie. Yeah. Did not expect to go where it went. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I usually ask what's a favorite interview question you like to ask. And I don't know how often you're interviewing people, but does anything come to mind when I ask that? Well, I can tell you one thing I ask when I speak with CEOs mm -hmm. um, is I like to ask uh, what role this 
narrative played in your leadership? What does it play? In, how, how does it work in your leadership? It's always really interesting for me to hear that. Uh, I often hear things that I don't expect. What's a favorite product you've recently discovered that you just really like? I recently got a Fitbit. I think I may have mentioned it earlier. I was like looking for a product like that. And so far, I'm really loving it. Amazing. Have you tried other versions of Fitbits or that's the, the one that's working? I also ordered a Polar uh, mm. at the same time and wound up returning the Polar. Mm. Uh, basically, it, it was just a little clunkier on my wrist. So I, I went with a Fitbit. Why? Do you have one that you recommend instead? I, I just have the Apple Watch and I've never tried a Fitbit and it gives me all this stuff that seems cool, but uh, I've never yeah. gone never gone further. I got the Fitbit like a week ago and I actually still am on the fence whether I bring it back to return it for the Apple Watch. So mm. I'm, I'm enjoying it, but we'll see. Okay, final question. You're an expert on presentations and I imagine you spent a lot of time in decks. And so just what's like one small change people can make to how they put together a deck or a presentation that will make their presentation a lot better? This is the one thing. Make the title the takeaway of the slide so that the person looking at it has to do zero work to take away. So example, you'll sometimes see like the problem or uh, the team. Replace like the team with our team, you know, is a veterans of whatever industry or every single slide, the takeaway, it's a takeaway, not a label. And it'll make everything flow a lot better. You did a killer job answering the lightning round questions without having a peek at what they were going to be. Andy, this was incredibly insightful. I'm going to go start working on my strategic narrative for my podcast and newsletter. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out, learn more, maybe consider working with you? And then how can listeners be useful to you? Uh, so I mentioned LinkedIn is a way to connect with me. That's, that's fine. Uh, my website is andyraskin.com. I also have a, a podcast where I talk with CEOs. So if you're interested in hearing like more details about you know actual use of this, it's called The Bigger Narrative. Uh, I My mom introduces every episode. I, I call her. Uh, I send her the interviews in advance. I call her an interview about what she thinks people will get out of it. And that conversation becomes the intro to the, the podcast episode. And what was the last question? How can listeners be useful to you? Useful to me. Uh, just, you know, if you try any of this stuff, uh, let me know, like worked, didn't work, uh, you know, have this question. I, I would love to hear that stuff. Amazing. Andy, thank you again for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Lenny. This is really fun. Bye everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at Lenny'sPodcast.com. See you in the next episode.